Soccer 101. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and today I'm joined by a man who has been spending some time staring into the abyss. Is he about to dive off the edge, or has he emerged feeling optimistic about the road ahead? Let's find out. It's Graham Ruthven. Hi, Graham. <laughs> Hi, Taylor. I mean, I feel like I'm being humored with last last week was a, a Kits Soccer 101. This week, <laughs> it's Scotland, so I'm definitely optimistic for this one. Uh, when we run out of topics that maybe I'm not that enthusiastic about, uh, I'll let you know. But for the All time right. being... I'm happy. I'm happy and excited to talk about this one. I guess this is a good time to announce that next week's Soccer 101 will be uh, how to buy deep fried pizza. I feel like that, <laughs> that we're just going to keep it going, Graham, because people do have questions about the personal life of Graham <laughs> yeah, Ruffin. <laughs> were yeah, you, were you just... prepared for that when you started appearing on the show? Uh, no, uh, no, <laughs> nobody has ever asked the questions about my personal life before. <laughs> but but uh, it good. would seem that TSS Twitter is is uh, is quite interested about certain things. But yes, next week we'll speak about uh, deep fried pizza, and then I'm sure there has there has to be a come down at some point. So we'll probably talk about the 1966 World Cup. Um, <laughs> At some point in the future, to even things out a little I bit. I will. I, I promise you, this is my gift to you. You don't have to be on that episode. Okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, but you do have to be on today's episode, and you are. We're going to be discussing Scottish football. More specifically, the nicest way I can put it is, why isn't Scottish football better? Why isn't Scotland better at football? When I was searching this question, Graham, I'm not trying to go negative right off the bat, but so many of the similar questions or like related questions were things like, why isn't Scotland good at football? Do Scots care about football since they're bad? And what is the point of Scottish football? We're not going to go that way with it, but I do want to ask you, and sort of as the introduction implied, like an honest question of how were you feeling sort of broadly speaking about Scottish football before I asked you to research a bunch and then explain all the problems versus how are you feeling now? Um, I guess I guess when I did my research, and obviously a lot of this stuff is, is stuff that is drummed drummed into Scottish football fans from, from a young age. You, you, you mentioned their do, do Scottish people still like football, even though we're bad at it? No one could ever accuse us of being glory hunters because <laughs> this is a this is a football mad nation, and we've not had really any success in, in the sport. Certainly not for about a hundred years. But I guess looking over everything and doing a little bit of research, it, it really did hit home. Maybe not in the modern age, not in 2021, maybe not even for 30 years. But we have traditionally been underachievers in in football, particularly international football. And so it's completely understandable that we get questions like why why are we not better at soccer because we it feels like we should definitely have a greater pedigree than we do and we do have good pedigree in terms of the roots of the game and some of the players that we've produced and even more recently we've started produ- producing some world class players again but yes that hasn't quite translated into positive results at major tournaments or just generally in international soccer But let's stick with the pedigree point for a moment, because I think sometimes when we get that question about, like, why isn't the U.S. men's national team better? Why isn't Canada better? There's an obvious answer there. For Scotland, there is much more of a history and much more of a successful, important history, I think, when it comes to football. Is that a fair way to summarize? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the original roots of the, if we're going all the way back to the the origins of football... Scotland played a major, major role in in the formation of the game that we know, the original roots of association football, if we're calling that to give its official term, 
They're widely disputed and England is widely considered the ancient homeland of the sport, but a lot claim that Scotland, and I know every country has a story like this, you know, China invented football, Brazil invented football, but a lot of Scottish historians will tell you that Scotland, in fact, invented football as we know it. In fact, the founder of the Scottish Football Museum at Hampden Park, a man called Jed O'Brien, says the modern passing and running version of the game has been played in Scotland for 500 years. Um, He claims that clan members played it in churchyards in the north of Scotland and then brought the game to Glasgow in the 1860s when they founded Queen's Park Football Club, who play at Hampden. I'm sure a lot of listeners have heard of of Hampden Park, which is the spiritual home of Scottish football, was of course one of the venues at Euro 2020. And while most fans and listeners to this might think of Celtic and Rangers as Scotland's two most important clubs, and that's certainly the case today and it has been for a long time, This club, Queen's Park, if you haven't heard about them, played a hugely significant role in the origins of the sport. They are Scotland's oldest club, and they're widely credited with taking that passing style of football. So beforehand in England, if if England did invent football as, as as we know it, then their version of football was much closer to kind of rugby, where you carry the ball forward and you don't really passing it, pass it. And it was it was Queen, it's Queen's Park that that are credited with that passing style, or or bringing it to the masses, I should say. Um, and even things like in English football circles, it's claimed that Charles Miller took the game to Brazil, but there are Scottish historians who actually claim that a Scottish engineer called uh, Archie McLean took football to Brazil when he was out working as an engineer and building uh, cotton works in Sao Paulo. So I I was reading the the historian Jed O'Brien. He even goes as far to say that the FA, the English FA, have have covered up the Scottish roots in football. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I don't have the historical knowledge to maybe go that far, but... Yeah, Scotland's role in, in the origins of the game, no matter which way you look at it, no matter if it was China or England or whoever that actually invented it, they're very, very strong. We are one of the, the kind of ancient homelands of the sport. I mean, you all did, I guess, theoretically invent the telephone, although The Sopranos has taught me that it wasn't Alexander Graham Bell, it was Antonio Meucci. So I'm not going to try to take the telephone <laughs> away from you. I won't even take uh, the the footballing history away from you or even the sort of like the making football better history is a, is the best way I can explain that one because from everything I was reading, it was sort of, at least for a good long while, historically the case that if you needed sort of flair players, if you needed people who were reading the game differently or trying different things, you weren't looking mm-hmm. to England, you were looking to Scotland. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And going forward a little bit into the, the kind of 50s and, and, and 60s, that was certainly the sort of players that, that Scotland produced. I mean, I'm going to pull one name out in particular, one name that springs to mind, Jimmy Johnson, Jinky Johnson, as he, as he was nicknamed, a player for Celtic who was a member of the Lisbon Lions, who we'll speak about a little bit later on, won the European Cup. I mean, this guy was, to compare him to a modern player, you would say he was a Lionel Messi sort of player. And, and in those days, you, you wouldn't normally get players of, of, of that ilk. So, And I think that speaks to... Um, almost something in the Scottish psyche, to be honest. You know, if if, if England, I mean, look, there are neighbours, and we're, we're, we have we share a land border with them, and we share a lot of culture with them. But if if England are the straight edged Brits, it tends to be the the Scots who maybe have a different interpretation of something, try something a little bit different. That is reflected in some in, in things like theatre and music and film, and and it, it's also it was also reflected in football as well and in sport. And um, yeah, you're absolutely right. That was that was the reputation that Scotland earned 
as a football nation was that we did produce very technically able, skillful, jinky, to use Jimmy Johnson's nickname, mm-hmm. players. And what about the kind of then visionary managers that we see come out of Scotland more recently or somewhat more recently, Sir Alex Ferguson, but there are mm-hmm. many before that. Would they sort of follow in that model of trying new things, improvising, adapting and figuring it out as they went and maybe causing a lot of problems when they figured some things out? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to mention three in particular. Um, they're nicknamed the Three Kings. So in 1945, you have Matt Busby appointed Manchester United manager. Then in 1959, you have Bill Shankly pitch up at Liverpool. And then finally, in 1965, you have Jock Steen becoming the Celtic manager. And between the three of them, they would they would shape club football as we, we know it today. All three men came from a a similar, same part of the world. Busby was from Bells Hill in Glasgow. Steen was from Lanarkshire, which isn't far away from Glasgow. And, and Shankly was slightly further out, but not that far away. He was from Ayrshire. And the communities they came from played a massive role in the men they were. And I would actually recommend at this point a, do- a documentary. I think in the UK, it's on Amazon. Um, I don't know about it in the US, but it's called The Three Kings. And it's about these three men and the role they played in in, in shaping club football as we know it today, I would highly recommend it. But it goes that documentary goes in depth into the, the communities that they, that these three men came from, and all three men grew up in heavily industrial communities. And in these times, poverty was rife in Scotland, and football was everything. Football was the only way out, and these communities became real hotbeds for the sport. And countless world talents, whether it was players or managers, in the cases of these three came out of these communities and they were, they were they were hardened by their experience but experiences in these community looking at busby he prioritized youth at manchester united he built one of the most exciting teams in europe the busby babes as many listeners will know the munich air disaster happened in 1958 which um, tragically saw many of them many of them die busby survived then rebuilt the side using the same principles principles that same that still sustain manchester United to this day and they won the european cup 10 years later in 1968 and busby really established that route between the youth academy i don't even know if it was an academy at that time but we'll call it that the, the youth ranks the youth teams and the first team and we take it as a given that there is a pathway between those two but that was busby that really brought that to the fore um, Busby's United team were actually only the, only the second British team to win the European Cup after Steen's Celtic won it the year before with a team consisting entirely of players from a 30 kilometre radius in and around Glasgow that's the, the Lisbon Lions I was talking about um, and, and I think it's even I think we talked about them a little bit on a uh, past episode of 101 that I think it's like it's 30 because of one guy and if you remove that one guy it <laughs> drops to like 8 kilometres or something like that yeah, well, the the vast vast majority were were from were from uh, were from Glasgow. I can imagine it was probably an Ayrshire or Lanarkshire player. I'm not actually sure who that player was that you're referencing, but it, I'd imagine Ayrshire or Lanarkshire. They tended to be two other hotbeds. But really, Scottish football history is concentrated in the Glasgow area just because, as I say, poverty was rife for for a long time, and and these communities, it was all these all all these people had, you know, was was football playing in in, in the street. Um, and just to mention, finally, to give me Stuart Shankly, who didn't ever win a European Cup, but over a 15-year period in charge of Liverpool, he he won countless league titles. But more importantly, he established the principles that Liverpool would become known for. And Liverpool FC owes much of its identity today to Shankly. And and going kind of back to your original question, th- these three were more than just good managers. They shaped three of the biggest clubs in the game today. 
you know, particularly Liverpool and Manchester United in terms of in the modern game. I know Celtic might not be considered one of the biggest anymore, but in Scottish terms, still one of the two biggest clubs here. And they established much of the professionalism and standards that still exists at the elite level to this day. And obviously later on, as you mentioned, you have Alex Ferguson who passes up the, who picks up the baton rather as the next great Scottish football manager. But it was Busby, Shankly and Steen, Steen who showed him and everyone else the way. For like you, you are obviously not, you know, a, uh, a, what's the word I'm looking for here? A person who is, he was older, but I'm just going to try that again. Sorry, Graham. <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for here? Not geriatric, but. <laughs> not geriatric. Yeah, uh, uh, old enough to remember? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's where I was going. <laughs> I just made it awkward. All right. Let me try this again. Um, one question I then have about like some of the names you've mentioned and what they meant to Scottish football. I'm always curious, is that a thing that you feel like the majority of Scotland fans are sort of aware of? Is that a thing that you're raised in and you're taught from an early age? Or is that a thing that you, Graham, know because you care about Scottish football history? Um, that's a very good question. I think, I think Steen is very much at the forefront. Maybe just because Celtic are obviously, they obviously play in Scotland. So you maybe hear more about the Lisbon Lions and Jock Steen and all that than you do. I think you would hear more about Busby if Sir Alex Ferguson hadn't kind of come along um, and, and kind yeah. of picked up that baton. Bill he Shankly, was influential. Yeah. He, he was influential, yeah. But obviously having two Manchester City managers, if you were to ask most Scottish football fans my age, who who is the, the best Scottish manager, they'd probably say Sir Alex Ferguson despite the fact that Busby maybe did more to shape Manchester United than Ferguson. But yeah, absolutely. Our, our history is, it's it's drummed into us as football fans in, in, in this country. Sometimes it actually can be a negative because I think a lot of the time Scotland has a, we have a undeserved arrogance, I would say, about our position in, in football in general. And I think back in the 70s and 80s, when we did have the players, that complacency was one of the things that stopped us actually building good teams was just, well, we can just turn up to tournaments with Doug Leash and Graham Souness and all these world-class players and, you know, we'll, we'll win the World Cup. And obviously that didn't happen. So in, it's been a, a two-sided sword for Scotland in that at, at, at that time, it, the complacency was an issue. And now it's an issue because a lot of people just think, well, you know, we're one of the forefathers of, of soccer. We will we'll get back to being one of the, the best teams just through sitting back and waiting for it to happen. And that hasn't happened. More recently, there has been more activity, which I think I'll go on to to talk about here but yeah we 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 have um our our place in football history does sometimes it is sometimes a negative for us mm -hmm. rather than a positive because it does create that kind of complacency so we've laid the groundwork for how things were good and why things were good and what Scotland did to sort of revolutionize and modernize the game we're going to talk about how things took a turn and where things could go from here in just a second but first a word from today's sponsor Today's episode of Soccer 101 is brought to you by the fine folks at ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN lets you change your online location so you can control where you want things like Netflix to think you're located. They have almost 100 different server locations so you can gain access to thousands of new shows. If you're wondering how Ryan Bailey has been watching so many different American programs while being abroad, it's because he's been using ExpressVPN, which allows you to essentially trick your computer into thinking that you are in the United States. So you you can watch Peacock and Paramount Plus and all the different streaming services you might need to be able to watch all of the different 
leagues that you then talk about for, say, the Weekend Review. This is a very Ryan Bailey-centric sort of advertisement, but it works because he swears by it, and so too do we, because it's a good way to watch BBC iPlayer. If you wanted to go that route and watch some match of the day, then you could. And with ExpressVPN, you still have blazing fast speeds. You're not losing any quality. You're not getting a ton of buffering or very pixely images. It's compatible with all your devices, and it encrypts your data. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. It's like joining a gym and then only using the treadmill and not using all those many other wonderful pieces of equipment and the swimming pool that's there. You got to use the swimming pool too, which I guess in this case would be Hulu. There we go. That makes sense. Uh, get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash soccer. Don't forget to use our link at expressvpn.com slash soccer. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash soccer to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Thank you very much to ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode. Now back to Scotland. Welcome back, Graham. I want to pick up on something that you said before we took that break, which is the idea that there is an undeserved arrogance about about Scotland and Scottish fans. Mm -hmm. Because I think I had in my mind that it was sort of maybe less awareness of the way it used to be and more like I think of it I promise I have more references than Braveheart and train spotting I promise <laughs> but I like I think of that scene of like doesn't it make you feel proud to be Scottish like I think of you saying that and the majority of Scotland fans responding it's crap being Scottish it's a it's a PG episode I know what the actual line is but I think that's where I was thinking so it's really interesting to hear you point out that like no there's almost an irrational confidence and an irrational self-belief in Scotland is that all rooted in sort of the ancestral origins and importance of uh, Scottish football, or are there more recent examples for that? Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say is I think there is a bit of a, a generational divide in that. And so I think some of the older fans are, there is still that that arrogance of we're just going to do things the same way we always did it and hope that things turn around a little bit. And <laughs> there's this weird split where, you know, myself, I'm, I'm, I'm 29, the last time Scotland were, were at a World Cup, I was, I was 17, I'm sorry, 17, seven years old. Um, so it hasn't happened in my adult life, and so you have one one generation who are com- who are slightly arrogant, I would say, and then another generation who, like me who are completely pessimistic <laughs> <laughs> and think everything's rubbish and we're never going to. And I actually sometimes come at it from the other point of view, where I, I just kind of accept Scotland's place in world football. The the, the way that the clearest distillation of it is actually Scotland's uh, club teams in Europe. So you get a lot of people who say Rangers and Celtic should be qualifying at stroll at strolling into the Champions League without even breaking a sweat. And then you get maybe people like me who just see that as so difficult. And it, the truth is maybe it's somewhere in the middle that, that Scotland, Scottish clubs probably should be qualifying more regularly for these tournaments. But it's not a God-given right. Absolutely not. So there is definitely a generational divide. But where does that generational divide, the idea that like we should be winning, we should be qualifying, it shouldn't be that easy, where does that come from? Is it just the Lisbon Lions? Is it we did it once in 1967, so we should be able to do it again? Yeah, I think I think there's also a certain degree of, um, I think this is a Scottish term, but do you know the term gallus? As as gallusness is, is I know a William Gallus is that is, so Gallus Gallus is um it's like a cockiness but almost a self aware cockiness so we so and that is that's something that is ingrained in Scottish identity is to is to be quite gallus so I think I think it isn't it isn't always as you know I would say a lot of English football fans are just full on arrogant it, hmm. there is a there is a self awareness to it um but yeah absolutely and in the sixties Scotland were 
were in the seventies as well. Scotland produced world class players: Daglish, Sunis, the Lisbon Lions. We had the best managers, and I still think if you go through history, Scotland has produced more world class and influential managers than any other country in world football, which is quite something for a country of five to six million people. So we do have we do have a pedigree. It's just that pedigree uh, has its roots quite a while ago now. And and with those teams in the in the seventies, like you you go from every World Cup from what seventy four to nineteen ninety. You skipped ninety four because I'm assuming you just don't like America. You're back for <laughs> ninety eight, and then an awful lot of crickets until this past summer. So from seventy four to ninety, though, that's a good run. That's a good consistent amount of qualification. What is Scottish football like in that time period? Yeah, I mean that that is that's a real consistent run, as you mentioned there, seventy four, seventy eight, eighty two. 86 um and 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 then uh, 90 and and 98 as you as you mentioned there but really the 74 70 82 86 sorry to repeat myself there are a lot of numbers um that is really a golden period of scottish football where believe it or not we have some of the best players in the world we have kenny Dalglish, who won three european cups over 100 caps for scotland represented the country at three world cups um still to this day regarded as probably our best ever player you have dennis law a Manchester United legend who was part of the Holy Holy Trinity, as they're called, alongside uh, George Best and Sir Bobby Charlton, the only Scot to have ever won the Ballon d'Or. That's right, a Scottish player did once win the Ballon d'Or. And we also had other world-class players around this time. Souness, who at, at that time was more than just a talking head with plenty to say about Paul Pogba. Uh, and we had Jimmy Johnson, Billy Bremner, Alan Hansen, Joe Jordan, wee Gordon Strachan, Archie Gemmell. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, Gordon McQueen, Billy McNeil, the list, the list kind of goes on, and and really the the distillation of Scotland having its best team and not living up to expectations came in the 1978 World Cup, um, where there was so much hype. It's a bit of an infinite, infamous tale now of Scottish underachievement. There was so much hype and excitement heading off to Argentina. This was a team that included a number of the names that I mentioned there. And as crazy as it may seem, there was actually a belief that Scotland could win the World Cup. Some of it was tongue-in-cheek, but believe me, some of the some of the fans believed it. Hamden was filled as Ali McLeod, who was a the manager. Their Scotland team were given a national send-off before they head, headed off to Argentina. And there was an, a famous anthem about how we're going to really shake it up when we win the World Cup. But at the tournament itself, Scotland were beaten by Peru in their first game, drew with Iran in their second game. And by the time Scotland claimed a win over the Netherlands in their final group game, which maybe that was maybe the true illustration of the quality of players that we had at that time, it was too late. And we went home early. And that, that was a pattern that, that repeated itself at almost every World Cup that, that Scotland played in that period. Once you get to 98, we're maybe slightly more aware of our place in world football. You know, we kind of know it's going to be difficult to get out of the group. But even then, there's underachievement. And we, we've never made it out of a group stage of a major tournament, which when you consider the pedigree that Scotland has had historically, that is incredible. And, and looking back, I think that is the biggest regret that Scottish football has. I think we're fairly comfortable at the moment to a certain degree. There's there's a lot of debate goes on about Scotland's place in world football, but there, we're kind of comfortable. We're not going to be, you know, a France, an Italy, a Brazil. We're, we're, we're so far adrift at that level now. But when you look back, there's a real regret that we didn't make so much more of that golden period I don't think people realised what they had at the time they, and, they, and they thought the country just would continue to produce world-class players forever and ever. And obviously, as we know now, that didn't happen and that conveyor belt stopped and I'm not sure it'll ever get back to that kind of uh, that level of production again. 
Rather than focus on the not ever doing it again, let's talk about why it stopped. Because that is really strange. We're talking about a period in which we have influential managers and world-class players and high expectations and qualifying for major tournaments. What are the sort of factors you think that start the decline? So I, t- I talked about societal circumstances earlier in, in this chat, and that, that comes into that comes into the discussion again here. So you would kind of say that by the start of the 90s, Scotland are, are starting to take a dip in terms of the, the, the quality of players that they're producing. The Scotland national team actually kept up a habit of qualifying for major tournaments all the way up to 98, but there was a bit of a lag because of we, we, we stopped producing those players. And this coincided with a change, as I say, in the societal circumstances. So communities were lifted out of poverty through decades of gen- regeneration, particularly in Glasgow. I mean, if you were to visit Glasgow now to, and then see it as it was in the, you know, the 60s and 70s and so on, it's a completely different city. Um, and the middle class was expanded, living standards were improved, and these are, of course, are all great things that have shaped Scotland as a, as a modern nation. You know, while we still have, un- undoubtedly, we still have problems in this country with, gotcha. with poverty in this country as well, that we it's not as it was back then. However, the footballing downside, I understand in the grand scheme of things, this is a very small downside, but in the footballing downside was that these the circumstances that had once created so many world-class players and football figures were largely eradicated. Football was no longer the only way out. Crucially, the street soccer environment no longer existed. And this slowed the conveyor belt of talent that came out of places like, as I mentioned, Glasgow and Lanarkshire and Ayrshire, and obviously other other countries went through these societal changes. This wasn't just something that happened to Scotland. This is something that happened across Europe at, at that time. But these countries replaced that street soccer culture with something. In countries like the Netherlands, and more recently we looked to countries like Iceland as a perfect example of this, they invested in facilities, they invested in coaching, and in providing young players with a framework that, as I said, replaced what they had previously. And there was none of that in Scotland. We got complacent as a football nation, and then wondered why it all came grinding to a halt Mm -hmm. in the 90s and the the 2000s as well. You mentioned the facilities and playing outdoor and all that type of thing. That is another question I had, is like, by by all accounts, Scotland has nice weather sometimes, but not nice weather a lot of the time. What is it like for a kid growing up playing soccer in Scotland? How often can you play outdoors? Is it a limiting thing? Are there indoor facilities? What does it look like year-round if you want to play soccer as a 12-year-old? Excuse me, I should <laughs> uh, say football. I apologize. We're talking about Scottish football. I shouldn't say soccer. It's 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 cold. <laughs> I mean, I, I shouldn't I shouldn't exaggerate too much because we don't live in the Arctic. It's largely just grey and drizzly and rainy here a lot of the time. The the biggest problem I think, particularly when I was a, when I was a kid, and I, I grew up in the nineties, so I'm you know I'm the perfect case study because that's when the production line kind of ground to a halt. Is that the, there just was nowhere to play? So obviously, obviously in these communities that were made, that were um, you know quite quite poverty ridden people would create football pitches and kind of wasteland and so on and that that wasteland became filled with with housing and as i say that's all very good um but there was nothing that replaced that so i i remember you know trying to find uh we would call them astroturf you know like field turf pitches to play on football pitches in scotland are, are so much harder i think it's getting slightly better but it's so much it's so much harder to find just find somewhere to play football 
and like kids kids will they'll, they'll play in the street but only to a certain degree you know and 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 so i think it was actually more the facility side of things rather than the weather because i mean you look at you look at other countries we we don't have that different uh a climate to countries like you know Sweden or even Netherlands and Belgium and countries like that you know they 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 have similar climates to Scotland really and um they they seem to have no problem but they 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 had a big drive with building facilities that that Scotland just didn't have and we have improved there there's a big kind of Icelandic style actually it's very it's modeled on what you would see in Iceland there's a there's a big complex right next to Hamden called Tory Glen which is used, I think, 24-7 throughout the week by teams and youngsters and so on. But the problem is we need about 20 of those around Scotland, and I think at the moment we have about three. Um, So it's still a problem that there's still not enough facilities. Over here, there's always the conversation about pay-to-play, about how youth soccer is exclusive and at times very, like, middle-class, white, Mm -hmm. suburban-oriented. What is youth soccer like over there? Sort of what is it like if you are a 12-year-old or a 10-year-old who is very good and wants to kind of continue on, what are the processes like for a youngster? Yeah, so you, you, it's very much controlled by the, by the clubs. Um, so if, you, if, you're, if you're very good at a young age, you'll get signed to a, what's known as a pro-youth contract where you get some amount of, of payment. And I'm actually going to take you through... I swear I will answer your question eventually, but I'll take you through some of the process we've had recently where we have kind of overhauled our our youth system. So in in 2010, the former first minister, Henry McLeish, for for anyone who doesn't know, Scotland has a devolved parliament. So we have kind of our own prime minister to to describe it simply. That's what the first minister is. Henry McLeish, he was commissioned by the Scottish FA to conduct an in-depth report into the state of Scottish football and he produced a document that made a number of recommendations to revive the sport. He described it as underachieving, underperforming and crucially underfunded. That's what I was getting to previously when I was talking about where it went wrong. Um, One of those recommendations was the creation of a a performance director for the country and that was that role was given to a Dutchman called Mark Vota and he implemented a number of those recommendations, the biggest of which was the creation of the regional performance schools. So these schools are, despite the fact that the clubs have control, if you're the cream of the crop, if you're the elite, you will go to one of these regional performance schools. They are linked up with uh, actual schools. uh, And so that they combine kind of education and football education. And these schools, uh, as I say, are located across the country, saw much more of a focus applied on the technical skills of young footballers rather than the, the physical attributes, which... Is that that was the bad cycle that Scottish football got itself into around about the kind of the late eighties into the nineties and even through the two thousands, we would we would determine who the good and the bad players are depending on their physical attributes, which was is baffling when you look back at it because as you mentioned earlier, Scotland was known for producing players who did things a little bit differently, technically able players, skillful players, and we that was a complete one eighty. So basically, these changes in two thousand and ten were designed to reverse that. Um, Vota left his role in 2014 and at that time it was really unclear whether the changes he would, he'd would he implemented would work because obviously this is the difficulty with changes at grassroots level is that you don't get immediate results and you kind of have to wait a number of years to see if what you've done a number of years previously has worked. But I think now there are some green shoots of uh, of progress Billy Gilmore is the poster boy for this. He's a product of the this performance schools, as is Nathan Patterson, who you'll be hearing about him in a few years' time. As I'll say, he's had a bid made by Everton for him this week. He's a Rangers fullback. 
Um, and perhaps the biggest upturn, is, I should also mention, has come in the, in the women's game as well, yeah. where Scotland's women's national team qualified for World Cup for the first time in the country's history in 2019. And there's been a solid flow of top-tier players to, to England in recent years, Caroline Weir, Erin Cuthbert, Claire Emsley... Um, a number of others and the women's game in Scotland has done a much better job of getting that conveyor belt to the big leagues going again and it seems to me um, while admittedly I do know a lot more about the, the men's game than I do about the women's game it seems to me that they've also done a better job of, of creating a, a Scottish type of player they're all very technical and you look at someone like Erin Cuthbert um, and she, to me, reminds me of the old Scottish players, you know, the Jimmy Johnsons and the Jim Baxters and so on, that the, the very technical, diminutive, and that, that a lot of the players in the women's in the Scottish women's team look like that and play like that. And I think the men are trying to emulate that, and they're, and they're getting back to that, but it's a slow pro- process. How are you feeling about the process at present? Because we basically still have a situation in which... I think up until last season, Celtic were expected to win their 10th straight title. Rangers get the title instead, but we do still have a system in which it's Celtic or maybe Rangers. And then that's about it in terms of title challenges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, in terms of our league structure that I don't think that'll ever change, we've got ourselves into this into this situation. We, we previously talked about on a Listener Questions podcast, we, questions podcast, I should say, we talked about Ferguson who managed to um, wrestle titles away from Celtic Rangers with Aberdeen for a number of years. And that I just don't see that happening anytime soon. And the, the 1990s was an interesting period in terms of the league structure because while that period saw the football production line slow down, the country's league was actually booming at that time. You, taking into account, if we're considering the early 2000s as well, Scottish football was home to plenty of recognisable names. We had Henrik Larsson as the biggest one, Paul Gascoigne, Ronald and Frank de Boer, Brian Laudrup, Mark Viduka. This was this was a bit Shinsuke of a golden Nakamura, age. Shinsuke Nakamura, the free kick specialist, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he definitely scored some <laughs> uh, incredible free kicks. It, recently, there's a, a new Celtic player called Kiyogo Furuhashi, and there's been a lot of chat. He's from Japan. There's, there's a lot of chat about Nakamura at the moment. So I've seen a lot of Nakamura free kicks recently. Love it. But yeah, we had... Uh, we had really good players and it was a bit of a golden age for for Scottish league football, but that seemed to come at the cost of homegrown talent. It, they found their route to the top blocked. And so I think, yes, it was great. I, I remember watching games at that time. I remember in the early 2000s in particular, Rangers and Celtic were both really good teams. You had Celtic that made to European Cup, eh, not European Cup, the UEFA Cup final. You had Rangers winning nine in a row towards the end of the 90s. And I remember some of the games around that time and they were like must-watch must events. Like, I don't think we have that now where everyone watches, even though the old firm still totally dominates Scottish culture, the games themselves actually aren't complete must-watch. In the early 2000s, they were. But I think that's linked to how around that time we stopped producing players because they just weren't given the opportunity. There was money in the Scottish top flight and kind of pulling on the coattails of the English Premier League or the English Premiership, Mm -hmm. as it was called then, Scottish clubs felt they had to spend big to go and get foreign players, to go and get the Dutch players, to go and get the Portuguese players. And that came at the, the cost of the kind of homegrown talent. How much of it also was a reliance on the Premier League when it came to where they were selling their players. Because I think some of what I was reading, there were arguments that it was basically 
Rangers and Celtics sort of hoovering up talent and then selling it on to Premier League clubs. But if you have a Premier League, which at the time is much more focused on the passion and the physical intensity of the game, you're going to look for players who can handle the passion mm-hmm. and physical intensity of the game. Less so the the technical, tactical side of the game that you might if they were going to Spain or Italy or Germany or something like that. So how much do you think that sort of connection to the Premier League, that relationship with it is a is a negative factor? I personally think it's a hugely negative factor, not just in terms of, you're absolutely right to mention the profile of the players that Scottish clubs were looking for with the the view of, okay, if we're selling these players on, they're going to the Premier League, so we need to find players that are going to be suitable for the Premier League, when actually we should be looking to countries like the Netherlands, Belgium, the Scandinavian countries, Th- those are our peers as footballing nation, as a footballing nation. It extends further than that, you know, in terms of the way we market our league as well, I mean, our league names are the Scottish Premiership, the Championship, League One and League Two. We basically just copy England and everything they do, despite the fact that, you know, England is the, the arguably the biggest football nation in the world. What they're looking for is going to be very different to what we're looking for as Scotland. We're one of us, the smaller nations. You know, we should kind of look after ourselves and figure out our own identity. And again, I think we are getting better at that. I think in the last five years, there has been improvement in that. But I, I do think... Look, the Premier League is a great product. I enjoy watching it as a fan. There are a lot of Scottish fans of the Premier League. In fact, I haven't, I've seen studies even that there are more Premier League fans in Scotland than there are Scottish football fans, which is maybe another, that's another downside of having the Premier League over the border. But I, I do think having the Premier League over the border has generally been a negative thing for so many different aspects of Scottish football, from the national team to the way our leagues are set up to homegrown talent, and we need to detach ourselves from that. I'm I'm struck by how many similarities there, in fact, are between at least the men's side of uh, Scottish soccer and the men's side of American soccer, and maybe even from the women's side in terms of the both of the women's teams finding consistent success uh, more recently. But like in the U.S., again, it's more of a middle-class sport, so you don't have that that sort of, we got to make it out, this is the way I'm going to make it out, this is the way I'm going to pull my family out. So you have those same similar societal circumstances when it comes to a lack of options. I think the size of the United States is part of that, about like where can you go to find good coaching, good training, do you have the facilities in place? And then an overemphasis on the Premier League, I think for the longest time American clubs tended to look to England for their coaches and for and colleges would bring in English players. Uh, I was reading, I had Simon Cooper on, on a Total Soccer Show uh, this week, if you're listening to this when it comes out, and he, and he has a, a story in there about Johan Cruyff basically hating playing for the Washington Diplomats because they were the first English-style club he'd played for, and they all wanted to drink and didn't care about tactics and just wanted to smash stuff. Mm-hmm. And and <laughs> I, I'm suddenly realizing there there are some similarities here that I didn't really realize were were quite so strong. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, the first thing you mentioned there about the, the middle class, I think that's a, that's a giant thing. Chris Boyd, who I know a lot of American fans will, will, mm-hmm. will know that name, played for the, the Portland Timbers. In MLS, he's the the top, the all time top scorer in SPL um, history when that league was was around. He recently said um, that that Scottish football has become a middle class sport, and that that caused a lot of debate. And your your instant reaction there, and I have it as well. Your instant reaction is to is to push back on that and go, no, it's not. You know, Scott, look at the roots of Scottish football. All the things I've just spoken about with the roots that it had in in Glasgow and those working-class communities, those are undeniable, those roots, and it's a big part of Scottish football history. But when you look at it objectively, 
Boyd's right. Like that has become the the biggest problem. One of the biggest problems for Scottish football is that there is that there is an accessibility problem. And from everything I've read about the way American soccer is as well, I think that's something that that you perhaps share with us. And that usually then gets uh, blamed on the FA or the U.S. Soccer Federation over here. What is the opinion of the Scottish FA over there? <laughs> oh no! <laughs> um, <laughs> I kind of had a feeling that was going to be the way that was going to go. Yeah, I mean, the Scottish FA have a marginally better reputation than the SPFL, which is the league body. So you have a similar situation with US soccer and uh, MLS in America. Um, Because SPFL, quite frankly, their reputation is dirt. I don't think you would find a single fan who thinks that the SPFL do a good job. The SFA's isn't much better. Um I think you look at the results of the the Scotland national team, particularly you know the men's national team in particular, which is you know maybe it's a simplistic way to look at things, but it is the the purest manifest, manifestation, sorry, of how we are getting on as a, as a football nation. And for the last thirty years, maybe longer, it's not been going so well. <laughs> um, so yeah, the Scottish FA, everything that I've just mentioned kind of gets thrown at them with justification. They do a good job. Recently, they've done a much better job marketing the game. I know a lot of pe- good people who work there who do a good job in the kind of the marketing side of things. But yes, their reputation is is not great. Maybe ever so slightly improving, but not by that much. So is there still then a lack of modernization? Is there still an emphasis on like, now let's just kind of promote the physical players. Let's care about the old firm and that should be good enough. Yeah, I think if you were to ask most Scottish football fans, they would they would say that we have a bit of a problem with dinosaurs in mm. our in our game. So, and I and I use that term um, delicately because it's you know it's it's quite a abrasive term to call someone a, a dinosaur. And just because someone someone's views are maybe outdated now doesn't mean that they didn't have they didn't have merit, you know, at some point. Uh, and you have a lot of people in Scottish football who maybe who maybe linger and outstay their welcome a little bit, and and that's something that I think in Scottish football we need to do a better job of is is the regeneration, not just at, on the pitch, but in terms of the decision makers. Um, we have a new when we have a new chief executive at, 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 at the Scottish FA, Ian Maxwell. He really should have come in a lot sooner than he did. We have a a, a chief of the SPFL who's been in position for a long, long time, Neil Doncaster. I'll go on record and saying it's time for him to go. He should have been gone a, a number of years ago. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about is at, this, at board level, executive level, level, we still tend to get stuck in the dark ages. I think we go after the same people. So recently, Celtic appointed a new... Um, consultant performance director it's not a, it's not a performance director but it's someone on a consultant on that that side of the, the the game not a coach not a manager they've been looking for this person for a long time they've been they've been talking about Juventus figures and Manchester City and City football group figures and the person that they hired as the consultant a few weeks ago was Gordon Strachan <laughs> which just <laughs> kind of tells you a lot now Gordon Strachan was a very successful manager for for Celtic and was a decent Scotland manager for a period and was a brilliant player but we tend to keep these people around for a little bit longer than they should, and we need to bring some new ideas in quicker than we do. The ideas do tend to get in, but it's the it's the the speed of which they get in that's the problem. Is Steve Clark, current Scotland manager, a new ideas guy, or is he more representative of the older guard, the dinosaur, oh, that is, if you will? That is a very good question. Um, whew, is it a cop out to say he's somewhere in the middle? Nope. Um, he is definitely a kind of old school guy. 
he you don't you don't really get much of a smile out of Steve Clark. He's not much of a, he's not a great quote. However, this is a guy that, and I know Jose Mourinho has recently become. Uh, he's now classified as a bit of an old school manager, but nonetheless, you know, Steve Clark learned a lot of his in, in football from Jose Mourinho working as a, his assistant. So he's he's not from you know the the eighties or even the nineties. He he has been successful in the kind of modern age of the game. So he 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 kind of cuts the difference. Uh, splits the difference, sorry, um, but yeah, that's a very good question. He he kind of he's he maybe doesn't fit that mold in, on, on either side particularly well. Is is there a Scottish manager who you think does sort of show the way forward, or is a sign that things are changing? Um, can I go for a? He's not Scottish, but a, a manager who is currently playing his trade in Scotland would be I the will, new Celt. I'm checking the uh, judge. Yes, judges say you can. That is allowed. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Okay, thank you. Um, the new Celtic manager, Ange Postacoglu, who is an Australian with Greek roots. He was the Australian coach at the 2014 World Cup, and he has come in here and really he's shaked things up, quite frankly. He's got a lot of ideas on high press and high-intensity football. He's also looking to different markets for players. So I mentioned uh, Kyogo, the Japanese player, came from the J-League. Leal Abada is an Israeli player who's come into to Celtic. They've signed recently signed a Croatian right-back. These are not really places that Scottish clubs go to find talent. And while it's still early days, and we'll learn a lot about them in the Old Firm Derby that's coming up on Sunday, they could get absolutely demolished by Rangers. But nonetheless, it seems like a lot of the ideas are really taking root, and it's forcing a lot of people in Scottish football to maybe think differently about what a successful manager in Scotland looks like. Because until very recently, we tend to go for the cert- a certain people who are kind of very strong traditional characters. And even when we go for young managers, I'm thinking of Steven Gerrard, he fits that mold of a very kind of traditional character with traditional ideas about football, defence first and everything like that. That's Gerrard. Postcoglu is something different. So I'm I'm really excited. I'm not a Celtic fan, um, but I'm really excited about what he's doing at Celtic. And I'm actually excited about what the knock-on effect. If he's really successful, I'm excited for how that could change Scottish football. I, I am very glad we're doing this episode for many reasons. I will say one of them is that you have made the situation at Celtic more clear to me. Because when uh, Postacoglu was first linked with that job, it seemed like there were some people who thought that was a good hire. And there were a lot of people on social media, at least, never the best indicator, but still, who were frustrated it wasn't a bigger name. And that was also the case when they were linked with Jesse Marsh. There was this, like, why, why are we going for this yeah. guy? We should be going for somebody bigger. We should be I getting in. That. <laughs> like, I think there was even a, like... Uh, somebody like isn't like Conte available now, and it's just like no disrespect, <laughs> Celtic, but like that's not. It was, it was Mourinho who Celtic fans consistently said, "Can we not go and get Mourinho?" And I remember the the reaction to Marsh being linked to the Celtic job, which was there was one tweet in particular where I I quote tweeted it. I couldn't help myself. Normally, I don't like to start Twitter beef, but there was one in particular that was, you know, Celtic should be above getting an American coach from the Austrian league, and I just thought you you. Like there's a certain level of delusion, yeah. and that's kind of what I was talking about with this undeserved arrogance. You know, like mm-hmm. yes, yeah, Celtic are one of the biggest clubs in the world. I do believe that in terms of their size, but in terms of where they are in the game and the in the footballing landscape, that that arrogance is undeserved. And Marsh would have been, I think, would have been taking at, at the least he would have been taking a sidestep from Salzburg yep. to Celtic, and then the end he went out, went and got the the Leipzig job. So. Yeah, I, that's the kind of attitude I wish would disappear. And I think if we can, if we can embrace where we are, and that's not defeatism. That's not defeatism. I'm not saying accept where we are. I think we can improve and get better. But if we embrace where we are and ex- accept there has to be changes, then that is the first step. And I, I think we're starting to do that. But 
it's always really slow with Scottish football. Everything is so slow. Um, I, I wanted to ask one more. I apologize if this takes us into a very random place, but, you know, whatever. It's Soccer 101. We can go random. You mentioned earlier the leagues that you should be looking to and the kind of countries that are comparable. And mm-hmm. it was really interesting to me because I think this is very much an American perspective. And because we're so removed from things, there's a focus on the big five in Europe and and sort of the high profile names, the ones that are marketable or are going to be on TV. That's probably the biggest part of it. And so it's it's cool to hear you sort of looking to other countries. Is that a a sort of normal thing? Like like do a lot of Scottish fans look to what Belgium are doing or Denmark is doing and sort of look to that for inspiration? Or is that more so you saying that's what they should be doing? No, it's it's a very, very common talking point in Scottish huh. football is that we should be looking to these countries. There's two things that that comes from. One is back in the 2000s, there was a proposal to create what was known as the Atlantic League at the time. So this was a cross-border yeah. league that Scotland was going to be part of with, I'm kind of going off the top of my head here, but the Netherlands were in it, I think Belgium was in it, and maybe a couple of the Scandinavian countries, maybe Sweden, don't, don't. Don't hold me on that one, but it was, a, it was a number of those Northern European countries. So that kind of implanted the idea that those were the countries that we should be shacking up with rather than with England. The other thing that definitely has a, mo- a more recent impact is Scot- Scotland. A lot of Scotland's season is defined by what happens in the, when I'm talking about Scotland, I mean Scottish football as the club, in terms of the club sides, a lot of their seasons are defined by what happens in European qualification. So when Brendan Rodgers got Celtic into the Champions League group stage two seasons in a row, that was almost a, as defining an achievement for Celtic as the fact that he won two trebles. He won two trebles as Celtic managers, domestic trebles. That The fact that he got Celtic to the Champions League group stage was as big an achievement. And so and Scottish clubs keep getting knocked out of qualification by countries from, like clubs from countries like Sweden and Norway and Croatia and, and, and those kind of countries, you know, Hibernian got absolutely destroyed in Europa uh, Conference League qualification uh, two weeks ago by Rijeka uh, from Croatia. Now, excuse my ignorance, I've, I, did, I did a little bit of digging on Rijeka at the time. They're not a bigger club than Hibernian. I doubt that they've got better players on the pitch. There's just something we, we, we are lacking when, when it comes to we come up against those teams. Another team is Celtic. We're knocked out of Champions League qualification by Malmo. Again, Celtic are a much bigger club than Malmo. I don't think it's arrogant to say that. They're a much bigger club than Malmo. But yet, Malmo are going to be in the Champions League group stage this season and Celtic aren't. Um, and this, this, this consistently happens for Scottish clubs where they're knocked out by, by clubs from the same sort of countries. And so that sparks up a discussion every single year. What are these countries doing right that we are not? And nothing ever comes of it. As I say, everything is so slow in Scottish (laughs) football. Nothing ever happens. But we at least have that discussion every single year. It's actually happening right now. Obviously, the qualifications are qualifiers are happening right now. So it's discussion that is on the radio and in the newspapers. It's been that case for been that way for the last few weeks. I'm also very glad you bring up Croatia there because. That tends to be one that is used as a counter argument when the explanation is, ah, Scotland's a small country and, you know, they they don't have like the resources necessary. And I was looking it up. I kind of do forget that Scotland is only about five and a half million people. Five and a half million is still a sizable number. But looking at like who that population puts you compared to, Mm -hmm. I think it's like Finland is just below you, Denmark just above you. 
But Croatia, I think, is only like three million. And to your point, they are quite good. So I think the size of the country, the population of the country is a factor, but it's maybe not that big of a factor when you have, say, Croatia and even uh, Montenegro, for example, making a World Cup with uh, significantly smaller populations. Excuse me, a Euro. Montenegro yet to make it to the uh, to the World Cup. Yeah, absolutely. The, the three countries that, that Scotland always looks to and thinks, why can we not be them, <laughs> are Denmark, Croatia, and looking to South America, Uruguay, mm. uh, is the other one we look to and think. These countries always, not only do they seem to make it to tournaments, but they seem to get really far. What is it about these countries that, that they do well? And obviously with Denmark making the semifinals of the last Euros, just there in the summer, there was a lot of discussion about that. And I remember reading a, a an article about how Denmark doesn't have the obesity crisis in young children that Scotland has. Um, and I, I should say that's not an isolated Scottish problem. You know, it's England has that problem. I'm led to believe that maybe America has that problem as well <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and, and, and younger and younger people. So it's, it's maybe a kind of more of a kind of Western culture problem rather than just a Scottish problem. But nonetheless, we, we suffer from it and Denmark doesn't seem to suffer from it to the same extent. So it's it's maybe a bigger discussion than, you know, what can the SFA do? How many pitches can they build? What can they do for grassroots? Maybe it's, again, going back to those societal circumstances, which were once really good for Scottish football and are now maybe not so good. Maybe you solve those things first or you look to those things first and maybe there'll be a knock-on effect. So if we are summarizing, I do want to end on a positive, but I want to summarize some things. If we're looking at maybe specific explanations for why things have gone the way they have for Scottish football. I have it as societal circumstances, uh, a lack of options and areas to play would be the second emphasis on physical attributes over skillful play emphasis on the Premier League over other similar leagues or similar to Scotland. That is uh, an FA's failing to adapt or evolve with an old school mentality and overall a general feeling of arrogance that might maybe makes some God. groups resistant to change. Those are my yeah. six explanations. You're depressing me here, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. That's not what I want. Um, I do want to adjust my mic. I apologize for that noise. It keeps tilting away. Even, even it doesn't want to listen to me. Graham, so those are my six sort of theories. Is there anything uh, else we should add to yeah. why things aren't rosy? Yeah, I'll add one more thing that I maybe should have mentioned before now. So particularly on the on the men's side of things, another mm-hmm. reason that things got harder for the Scottish national team was the the breakup of the the Soviet Union and the and Yugoslavia, which created a, a number of smaller oh, countries, wow. which are pretty much the same size as Scotland, and so UEFA became larger wow. and larger. And for countries of Scotland's size, the competition got stiffer. So obviously, for your Frances and your Italy's and your England's and so on the competition actually got a little bit easier because they lost two superpowers of, of football uh, in, in Yugoslavia. Yeah. Not, not so much the Soviet Union, because obviously Soviet Union, a large part of that is still Russia and they're still around. But um, y- yeah, the competition, the pool got a lot deeper and the competition that was created was very much in the same field as Scotland. Um, so I think that is often used as a bit of an excuse I still think we can compete and do well against these countries, but I think it's fair to mention it as a factor. I do, almost every single World Cup, though, I do enjoy looking up what team Yugoslavia could put together, and it is ridiculous how good yeah. that, that that country was at football. Less so at staying unified, and I think there are very good reasons for that. Let's not go into Yugoslav politics, because <laughs> I think that could be 
a lot more trouble than talking about Scottish football somehow, uh, Graham. But we should end on some positive things. And I'm assuming it is not all gloom and doom. You mentioned Billy Gilmore there. Should we just talk about him for the next 15 minutes? Or are there <laughs> other things you would point to as positives? Yeah, I mean, I was hoping we'd do a full podcast on Billy Gilmore <laughs> at some point. Um, yes, there are absolutely some some green shoots of recovery starting mm-hmm. to poke through the scorched earth. I, I did mention the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I find that so funny, but I do. <laughs> I very nearly said Scotch egg rather oh. than scorched egg, earth. I almost said it again there. Anyway, um, <laughs> in terms of the... You're the... getting very close, Graham, to like... We had that tweet before we started recording of... Uh, it's a video of a girlfriend filming her, I think, boyfriend <laughs> trying to pronounce things, and he is Scottish. And I did write down some of the words, Graham. If you, if you oh, want no. to, we can go that way, but we do not have to. Do you know the one that is, I will totally accept, hmm. is very difficult to say. I'm going to make a fool of myself here because I can't actually say it that well. Burglar, that burglary? That is the number one I had written down. <laughs> <laughs> that is not uh, anything with that L-R-Y yeah. mm-hmm. uh, is quite difficult for Scottish people to say. <laughs> so yeah, burg- burglary, burglary is a difficult one to say. What about but- regularly? regularly that's a light, slightly easier i think it's the b makes it it just sounds like a gargle of water burglary <laughs> what about here's your last one the sentence the burden purple murderer infers the preferred referral oh god no <laughs> not even a chance <laughs> that was the last one and i was like that's that's a lot and i think in the video the the uh the boyfriend correctly points out that that's not a real sentence that people would ever say so we don't need to do that but let's talk talk about green shoots and scorched earth not scotch dicks <laughs> Yeah, not scotched eggs. Um, yeah, so and on the women's side of things, um, it's definitely the case that things are getting a lot better, not just in terms of the, the talent being produced, but in terms of the awareness of the game. It's always a little bit of a, you know, an, an uphill battle, um, particularly when you place it alongside the men's game. Glasgow City were playing UEFA Women's Champions League qualifiers at half 10 on a Tuesday the other week, half 10 in the morning, I should say, and that is not ideal. So we've still got a long way to go. But in terms of on the men's side, in terms of the talent we're producing, things are getting better. We have a couple of world-class players playing at a high level in Andy Robertson and Kieran Tierney. I would I would personally class Tierney as, as world-class. Um, and we have players at Manchester United and Scott McTominay, first-team players, Billy Gilmore, I know he's gone out on loan to, to Norwich, but I think he, it's fair to say he's seen as one of Chelsea's best prospects. And then we have the likes of John McGinn, Stuart Armstrong. We have a, a number of players who are not just playing at Premier League level, but actually shining at, at, at Premier League level as well. So we're still not where we want to be. Um, I think the Euros came a little bit too early for us as a team. I do look back at that with a lot, with quite a bit of disappointment. I don't think we played as well as we, we could have. To not win any of the three games is, is really disappointing. But it will be worth something if we if we build on that qualification. And, and that's the thing. Going to Euro 2020 will be worth nothing if it isn't followed by going to more tournaments. There needs to be more from this, this, uh, this generation, but there is a sense that at long last we are maybe potentially sort of heading in the right direction again. And when you all are definitively heading in the right direction, is there like one club in Scotland you think is doing things well or doing th- things the way they should be done right now? Like who do you think could be the starter could get some credit for turning things around or bringing through more modern approaches to the academy or whatever it might be? Is there a club in Scotland that you think is doing a particularly good job right now? 
Um, I wouldn't say there's one absolute standout club, but I, I think it would be fair to mention Rangers in this. They've they've had a, a pretty significant overhaul of their of their whole structure, and that extends to the youth level as well. Since um, you know they suffered complete meltdown about ten years ago, they've they've completely rebuilt that. So Billy Gilmore um, came through the Rangers system before he went to Chelsea. He that's where he came from. Nathan Patterson, I mentioned him. I think you're, I'm pretty confident you're going to be hearing about him quite soon he is, is a Rangers youth product and just generally they seem to be doing quite well but it is, it is something that goes across Scottish football I mean Andy Robertson um, came through Queen's Park who we were talking about earlier um, and he, he went to Dundee United Dundee United give a lot of ch- chances to young players Hibernian are doing a good job John McGinn kind of came through Hibernian St Mirren is another club in Paisley just outside Glasgow they give a lot of chances to to young players, Celtic they they traditionally have a good conveyor belt of young talent. Tierney is maybe the the obvious candidate there. He came through their youth system. It's it's slowed a little bit in the last couple of years or so, but um, yeah, it's definitely something across Scottish football that I think I wouldn't point to one club in particular. It's just something everyone is kind of up in their game a little bit. And another slightly odd question. Let's say you uh, you you come into some money, Graham, and you have the opportunity to invest in a club that maybe isn't Celtic or Rangers, if you were going to do so, like where is there, is there an undervalued club? Is there a market that maybe should be bigger that could, with a little bit of investment, start bringing through more exciting players? Uh, I mean, if I had money, I would buy Sterling Albion. There we and go. I would, I would build a pub at the side of the pitch and yep. I would sit in that pub there we go. for the rest of my life. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is the answer I was looking for. Any club that builds Grandma Pub... We know things are moving in the right direction. Uh, Graham, <laughs> anything else on on why Scottish football isn't as good as it could be or how it's going to get better? Uh, bad kits. When we had a bad kit at the Euros <laughs> this year, I think that was a big factor. When we have good kits, we tend to be slightly better. Oh, wait, no, actually, no, we're not better when we have good kits. We're just uniform, uniformly mediocre to bad. Uh, All right, so yeah. worse kits is what I'm hearing. Get them even worse and more generic, <laughs> and then you'll be good to go. Yeah, I'm, I'm really hoping that Puma start making our, uh, <laughs> our Scotland's kits. Get some more words on there, Puma. We don't have enough. Uh, well, yeah. Graham Ruthven, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk about the many, many aspects of Scottish football, both positive and negative. I hope it was not too emotionally distressing for you. <laughs> I mean, there's always a degree of emotional distress when you talk about Scottish football, but it See, wasn't too bad. This is, I'll survive. this is the problem, Graham. This is the problem right here. I, I kind of <laughs> feel like that's true, that whenever Scots are talking about their national team, there's always an element of emotional distress. And I don't think that's the foundation for a healthy conversation. <laughs> yeah, probably not. We maybe need to... Uh, Go to footballing therapy or something to eradicate that (laughs) first. (laughs) There we go. The entire country goes to footballing therapy. That is our solution. Graham, a wonderful solution. Thank you for that and many other things. No problem at all. It was good fun. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening. I too thought it was good fun. Hopefully you all did as well. I've been Taylor Rockwell. He's been Graham Ruffin. This has been Soccer 101. We will talk to you all next week.